0: Scripture lesson for this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 35 through 39. Listen now for God's Word to you. In the morning, while it was still very dark, Jesus got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for Jesus. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go back to the neighboring town so that we may proclaim the message there also. For this is why I came out, this is what I came out to do. And he went out throughout Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Early one morning, a mom went into her son's bedroom to wake him up for school. She said, Son wake up, it's time to to go to school. And the son, of course, protested, said, no, I don't want to go to school. And she said, well, why don't you want to go to school? Give me two good reasons why you don't want to go. He said, well, number one, all the kids hate me. Number two, all the teachers hate me too. And the mom said, well, that's not true. Come on, get up and go to school. He said, well, give me two good reasons why I should go to school. And she said, well, number one, you're 52 years old, and number two, you're the principal. I'm sure there was a lot of that this week as kids went back to school for the first day. Uh, First days can be exciting and event-filled. They can be especially important when it's that first day of kindergarten. Uh, I was driving, dropping off my kids at daycare and I saw so many parents out on Monday morning taking photos of their kids for their first day of kindergarten. Uh, Those photos become treasured memories. It's an exciting time. Uh, First days can be so exciting. There's also first days of a brand new job, which can be really good, or they can go really poorly. Uh, Things can go really wrong on a first day of work, like this one woman I read about who started at a new job and decided to change out the film on the laminating machine, but she put the film in backwards and it stuck to the rollers. Nothing like a $1,500 mistake on your first day of work. Or another person who began her first day as a a counselor at a prison and she split her pants and had to wear running shorts the rest of the day. All manner of things can go wrong on a first day. Things can go really well or things can go really poorly. Uh, Jesus, too, had a first day, and this is where we catch up with him in the Gospel of Mark. Him beginning his ministry, the first day of his ministry, that Jesus calls his first disciples... And they make their way into the town of Capernaum, which becomes Jesus' adopted hometown throughout the Gospel of Mark. And it's the Sabbath, and he sees all of the townspeople heading towards the synagogue, and Jesus and his newly called disciples join them. In fact, Jesus was slated as the guest preacher that morning in the synagogue. And as he preaches, everyone is amazed at what he says. We've never heard anything like this, they say. He's not like our normal pastor. Amazed at all the things that he says. But even more amazing than what he says, it's what he does, that while he's preaching, a man walks in with what Mark describes as somebody with an unclean spirit, and Jesus stops the whole sermon to attend to him, to heal him. And this really dazzles the crowd. Not only is Jesus one who preaches with a sense of authority, but also one who does things with a sense of authority. And so after worship is over, Jesus heads back to where he's staying at Peter's mother-in-law's house, which always cracks me up. Peter had a mother-in-law. I don't know why that makes me laugh. But heads back to Peter's mother-in-law's house where he's staying, getting ready to do what I think was the most sacred thing any pastor does on a Sunday, and that is take a nap. But of course, as pastors know, human need doesn't take a break just because it's Saturday or Sunday. And this is exactly what happens to Jesus. The human need meets him head-on, first in the form of Peter's mother-in-law, who wasn't feeling well before worship didn't make it, and now she's laying in bed sick with a fever. And so Jesus skips lunch, skips the nap, and attends to Peter's mother-in-law and heals her. And then that evening, the entire town, seemingly entire town, and the surrounding region is at the doorstep of Jesus, or Peter's mother-in-law's house, looking for healing from Jesus, looking for a good word, And of course, Jesus heals all of them. So this is the first day of Jesus' ministry. and I think it's a really great first day. Not only a great first day, it's a first day that sets the entire pattern for his ministry. And with a really fulfilling day like this, usually one of two things happen when it's finally time to go to bed. Either you fall asleep the second your head hits the pillow because you're just so exhausted from the day's activities, or you lay in bed awake, tossing and turning because you just can't seem to shut your mind off, replaying, processing all the things that happen throughout the day. And this seems to be what happens to Jesus. He seems to have a hard time sleeping, that tossing and turning a bed, can't get comfortable, caught in that liminal space between half awake and half asleep. And, and then finally, in the early morning hours, while it's still dark, he gives up. He leaves the house, he makes his way out of town, and heads towards a deserted place to pray. The deserted place, it's a description of what we know in the Bible as the wilderness, that we find the wilderness as this really important motif throughout the Bible, that the people of God often find themselves in the wilderness by God's direction, Jesus, very early on in his ministry, before it even begins, he spends 40 days wandering around in the wilderness, praying, discerning, figuring out who is it that God is calling him to be. He has this sense that God has called him to be the Messiah. But if you said Messiah in a crowd of people in those days, they would have had all sorts of ideas, all sorts of expectations. And so the wilderness becomes this place for him to discern, to listen to the Spirit as it speaks to him. And then, of course, there are the Israelites who wander around in the wilderness for 40 years that they tried to enter in the promised land, but they weren't quite ready. They proved themselves not quite ready just yet. And so they spend 40 years preparing themselves, God leading them around in the wilderness. So sometimes people end up in the wilderness because God brings them there. But then there are times where people seek the wilderness for their own benefit like we have the prophet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings, who is so exhausted and so worn out with his responsibilities and also his self, his sense of self-aggrandizement, Elijah thinks pretty highly of himself. And so he runs out into the wilderness exhausted, and this is where God meets him. So the wilderness becomes this place throughout the Bible of discernment, of clarity, of finding the rest and renewal that you so desperately need. The wilderness is all of that. But the wilderness is also an incredibly scary place because the wilderness forces us to be alone, to be by ourselves. And there is are few things, I think, that scare us modern people than being alone by ourselves. Uh, it's important for us to clarify what we mean when we're talking about being alone. Uh, Paul Tillich says that the word we use to describe the pain of being alone is loneliness. And loneliness is something that we can experience even when we are surrounded by other people, even when we are surrounded by coworkers and friends and family. It is entirely possible for us to feel alone, like nobody sees us, like nobody understands. But it's also possible for us to be by ourselves, around nobody else, and to not feel lonely. Paul Tillich calls this the glory of being alone. This is what we call solitude. This is a a space that we seek in our own lives for rest, for, for renewal, for connection with God, for connection with that deepest part of ourselves. But even still, whether you call it loneliness or solitude, being alone scares us, that we have this sort of aversion to being alone. And this was demonstrated maybe 10 years or so ago when this uh, psychological experiment devised by the University of Virginia. Um, And what they did was they tested age ranges from 18 to 77 to see how people liked being alone with their own thoughts. And what they found across those generations is that everybody had an aversion to it. Nobody wanted to be by themselves. And it's easy for us to blame the omnipresence of cell phones and iPads and TVs or whatever it might be. But what the researchers say is that those things are really just symptoms. They show this already ingrained aversion to being alone. So here's how the experiment worked. They had the participants first in a a lab, and they were instructed to sit alone in a room for anywhere from 6 to 15 minutes, depending on the particular experiment. Sit in this room with no cell phone, no music, no writing or reading materials, just to sit alone with their thoughts. And when they came back out, what they described was really not liking this experience at all, that they would have rather done anything, anything at all besides sitting alone with their thoughts. But the researchers took it even further, and they said, what if we did this at home? And so they gave the, the participants the same instructions at home, sit alone in a chair, no music, no TV, nothing like that. And what they found was that Almost a third of the participants admitted to cheating during the test. They listened to music. They got up out of their chair. The rest of them reported the same things as the participants in the lab, having a hard time with the test, their minds wandering. It was hard to focus. But the researchers wanted to know even more. Obviously, Americans want to do something, anything else, besides sitting alone with their thoughts. But what if that something else was something unpleasant? And so they did this test again. This time they gave all the participants a button that would administer a a mild electrical shock. And so they put these participants in the room to sit alone with their thoughts, and 12 of the 18 men pushed the button at least once, and 8 of the 24 women pushed the button at least once. And here's where it gets even more interesting, is that before they went in for this test, They were given a sample of the electrical shock and all the participants said they would pay money to not experience that electrical shock. But then, sitting alone in a room with their own thoughts, it was better to feel the physical pain of this electric shock than sitting alone. We have this aversion to being alone. Paul Tillich calls it the glory of being alone, but I feel like many of us don't experience it as a glorifying thing, that it's a a difficult thing. And I imagine for most of us it's a difficult thing because our own internal monologues are sometimes so negative that we talk to ourselves in ways that we would never talk to anybody else, in ways that if we heard someone else talking to us or to anybody else, we would have something to say. Sitting alone with our thoughts is hard because this is when the anxiety and the stress can creep in. It's a way of avoiding all of those feelings. I know I'm not the only one who stays up way too late scrolling through social media or watching TV at night because I know as soon as I turn the screen off, that's when the stress and the anxiety starts to creep back in. Brothers of us, sitting alone with our thoughts can be those moments where the, 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 the pains and the wounds of the past creep back in. It is a hard thing to be alone. We would do almost anything else, administer a mild electric shock, to simply not be alone with our thoughts. The wilderness is a scary place. But as scary as it is, it is also one of the places, one of the most important and profound places where we can meet, experience, and hear God that all of the great religious teachers across religious traditions have often sought the wilderness, sought these spaces to be alone. Even here in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is a man of action, a man who's going going here and going there, has little time to stop for anything. He stops often to pray. That this, I think, becomes for Jesus a grounding place, a place where he can hear God speaking to him, grounding him, connecting with God, and thus, by extension, connecting with his true self. That Jesus needs this space of the wilderness, because without it, all of those other expectations are going to start to pile on to Jesus. All of those different ideas. You start talking about the kingdom of God, and people are starting to get some ideas about what that's supposed to look like. It's you say you feel like you're the Messiah, people are going to try to make you king by force, which is what happens later on in the Gospel of Mark. And when people find out that you can heal, they're going to try to make a profit off of it, which is exactly what Peter and his companions do here in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. They they wake up and Jesus' cod or the couch or wherever he was sleeping is empty, and so they wander out to go and find him, and they find him out in this deserted place, and Peter says, Jesus, what are you doing out here? It's it's all dark. Why don't you come back to the house? What Peter is really saying is, Jesus, let's set up shop here in Capernaum. Because, you know, Jesus wasn't the only one in those days who could perform miracles and healings. Miracle workers were a dime a dozen in those days. And what they could do is they could set up shop in a place like Peter's mother-in-law's house, charge for healing. And Jesus could have made a nice little career for himself doing that, right? His mother might have been proud of him, all of these sorts of things. But of course, Jesus resists all of this. He says, my calling is to care for the people around me, the left out, the forgotten, free of charge, to announce the arrival of the kingdom of God. It it takes people a long time to understand this in the Gospel of Mark. This is why Jesus continually seeks the solitude of the wilderness, this space of connection with God. Thomas Merton says that sometimes we find ourselves so lost in a sea of of humanity that we lose our ability to love, we lose our ability to determine our own lives, to understand who we really are. That how easy would it have been for Jesus to lose himself with all of these other expectations placed upon him? The, The noise of expectation around Jesus was deafening. How easily could Jesus have become Roman Jesus, or faith healer Jesus, or health, wealth, and prosperity Jesus, or Roman Jesus, American Jesus? Whatever you could imagine, Jesus could have become that. And yet, in the seeking of the wilderness, in the seeking of solitude, he continually hears that voice speaking to him. And the noise around us, too, can be deafening, can't it? the noise of other people's expectations on us of who we're supposed to be, the noise of the wounds and the injuries of the past, that our jobs can easily make us into a cog in the machine. And so we seek the wilderness. As scary as it is, it becomes that place that grounds us. You know, this is a place where Jesus connects with God. This is not Jesus practicing self-care. He's not, he's not watching Netflix with his headphones on, right? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but this is a moment of intentional connection with God, grounding himself in who God calls him to be. We need the wilderness as scary as it is, and often God calls us into the wilderness. Tillich says that that God sometimes calls us into the wilderness because there is some question in our hearts that we are longing to ask, but we are too afraid to ask it. And so God calls us into the wilderness so that we can ask that question. Sometimes God calls us into the wilderness because there is this calling in our lives for greater justice in the world, and yet it scares the heck out of us. And so Jesus, or so God calls us into the wilderness so that we can find the courage to fulfill the calling that God has placed on us. Sometimes God calls us into the wilderness so that we can learn something about the depth of our own being. Yes, sometimes God calls us into the, into the wilderness, into the deserted places. But I think it's also true that it's important for us to seek the wilderness for our own sakes from time to time. That what better place is there to find and to know yourself as the beloved of God? It is so easy to forget that with all of the noise and expectation around us, to forget whose we are and who we are, that we are loved just as we are. I think also it's important to seek the wilderness sometimes because it is sometimes a good and holy thing to be completely useless to anybody else. Yes, we have our Christian responsibility. Yes, we're called to seek justice and show love in the world. But it's also important for us to remember that we are just as loved as we are when we are doing nothing as we are when we are doing something incredibly important building the kingdom of God all around us. The wilderness provides space for this, as scary as it might be. So the next time you find yourself in a wilderness or a desolate place, resist that urge to pick up the cell phone, to turn on the TV, to pick up a book, and instead know that in that moment of solitude that God is ready to speak. Open your hearts to the voice and the whisper of love, the voice that calls you worthy and valuable just as you are. Wilderness scares us just a little bit. But know in those spaces, God is present. Thanks be to God. Amen.